Good morning, downers and travelers. Of the world. Of the world. I was going to say that. You were. Well, I was, I was, I was quicker on the uptake yeah. than you were. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And, um, this is actually on, an, this is actually on the menu with Charlie Trotter too. And, and we have a, a nice long interview with the, the illustrious chef and so much more than that as you'll learn when we have our interview with him when we run it. And, um, and for no better reason than because we talked with Charlie about wine service, we're going to conclude the program, uh, with some interesting personalities from the beer and wine business. So that's today's lineup. But first up, we talked about Charlie Trotter's interview, which is, I should warn you, is 31 minutes plus in duration. And we thought about breaking it into two, and then we, we said, you know, we really can't do that because everything that he said was so continuous and so important and so interesting. So sit back and relax and enjoy our conversation with the wonderful Charlie Trotter. Charlie Trotter is possibly one of the most widely acclaimed chefs in the whole entire world, but that's only the beginning of the story, the chef part, I mean. Welcome, Charlie, to On the Menu. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be with you guys today. Well, I mean, when I said this is just the start, I mean, you are a teacher, you are a mentor, you are, you have a takeout uh, restaurant, you have a culinary foundation, uh, you do all this philanthropic work, you have television shows, you write books. Uh, I don't know where you find the time. Well, it's me and my 45 assistants. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's how we do things. No, I'm teasing. We have a great team, and, you know, it's not just me out there doing all these things by myself. We have great uh, sous chefs and pastry chefs and uh, dining room leaders and sommeliers and, and a variety of folks that all have different sets of responsibilities. So that's the key to everything. And so you're very well organized. Well, our team is very well organized. All I do is point with my eyes, <laughs> give a few directions, and they do the rest. And they, they say, Chef Trotter, if you could just stand over there and get out of the way, we'll make it happen. And, and they make me look good. As good as I can look. Anyway. Curiously, when we asked Thomas Keller what the secret of his success was, he said it was teamwork. And I think you would probably say exactly the same thing. Absolutely. It's like a great uh, sports team. You know, you think of a, a team like the Los Angeles Lakers in the 80s with Magic Johnson, and, and he was a guy that got everybody involved, and, and uh, or the Bulls with Michael Jordan. And it was, you might have one or two people that are just extraordinary, but, but without everybody else, you couldn't, you couldn't win the championship. And that's how we look at things. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of people that have very important and key roles. And, um, I just happen to be sort of the, the face, in a sense, but um, yeah. but everybody does a great job. Now, you started out as a political scientist. Well, I, I had, uh, had first went off to, uh, you know, academic life, thinking possibly I'd, I'd go on to graduate school and, and wasn't really sure. I, I became less enamored with that kind of lifestyle. Uh, I studied political theory and, and philosophy and... And decided not to go to graduate school. I began. I was cooking for my roommates at the time. This yeah. was in the, the early '80s, uh, late '70s, and uh, up in Madison, Wisconsin. And I really loved cooking. I loved the sort of physical attributes and the the sensual component. And I decided I think I might want to be a cook. And hey, what's the worst that can happen if I do this for a couple of years uh, and I'm not very good at it or I don't like it? I can always go back to graduate school, right, or go to law school or something like that. So it's a but I, my first day on the job, I fell madly in love with the whole thing, and here I am today, uh, I don't know how many years later, still, uh, still, I'm still a cook. I mean, I'm more of a cook than a chef. Uh, that's how I look at myself. Very few chefs 
do that anymore. <laughs> we'll get themselves no, as cooks. Think, think, think of it this way, Charlie. If you'd stayed in, if you'd stayed in political science, maybe we'd be talking to you as President Charlie instead of <laughs> President Obama. Or you might be talking to me as President Obama's lead lead cook down in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's probably he studied every uh, you know the same the same field of work, but he uh, he knows how to cook. So maybe I'll plug him in, and I can. When I'm eating with the family, I can bend his ear about some things. <laughs> uh, the the uh, one, one of the one of the words I think that many people would use in describing Charlie Trotter is meticulous, and no nowhere is the lesson of meticulousness clearer than in a book called Lessons in Wine Service. So yes. why why don't we start why don't we start there? And well, thank you for that question. Um, <clears throat> Lessons in Wine Service is the third and final volume of a, a three-part management, or more I don't like the word management, but, but leadership uh, series of books. And we emphasize leadership all the way around our organization. Number one rule is you, you work for me, for sure, but forget that. Most importantly, you work for yourself. And the only degree of success in life comes from when you have your own highest standards. And you, work, you may have a boss, you may have a supervisor, but if you understand the idea that your own expectations and standards for yourself have to be even higher than those around you, any leader, anyone else, then you will ultimately, ultimately become a leader. So we try to consider our organization as a breeding ground for creating leadership. The book Lessons in Wine Service um, continues uh, along a path of focusing on a number of things that happen in a, in a certain realm of, of the experience of service. There was Lessons in Excellence, the first book, which even though it features ideas from our restaurant or a restaurant per se, those ideas can be adapted to all sorts of businesses. And, um, and that's kind of the fun part about it because we, when we get a, a business leader in, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or any other kind of leader, and they say, you know what, your book is really fantastic. There are so many ideas in there. Even though they're specific to your restaurant, they apply to my business. I brought 50 copies for my staff. Oh, that's That's wonderful. how we started with that book. But we continued with Lessons in Service, which went right to the core of just service. I mean, literally playing the game of chess where you're trying to outthink the client. You're trying to do things for the client before they even have a chance to ask for something. And so you're observing things. You're overhearing things. You are perceiving things. You are looking at things. And you are, you are deriving ideas and, and, and figuring out things to do for a client, a guest, uh, before they even have a chance to, to ask for those things. Lessons in line service, as, as I said, the final part of the series, um, focuses specifically on the, the area of wine. Although there are ideas that uh, expand beyond just wine, but it, it's really for the wine connoisseur at home or for the, for the professional. A lot of our books are written for professionals. Yeah, this, uh, book, this book is obviously targeted in that direction, although I've been enjoying looking at it because it also teaches me about things about wine that I didn't know. Uh, but let's, let's start with the story close to the front of the book. I think it's really a fascinating book. Uh, and you speak of uh, Larry Stone, who worked for you, who tells this story. Uh, that you had, I think, a guest who came into the restaurant and he ordered a Chateau Mouton Rothschild. I, for, I forget the year, which is a rather outstanding, with a rather outstanding wine. But the guest had ordered lobster to go with it. So Larry <laughs> came rushing into the kitchen and said, "You'll never guess what happened." So then, what did you do, Charlie? You changed the sauce on the lobster. Well, Larry Stone, uh, for the listeners that 
I'm quite familiar with him, is easily regarded as the greatest sommelier in America. He was the first uh, sommelier to ever win the World Sommelier Competition in Paris uh, back in 1986. So if you can imagine an American winning the World Sommelier Competition in France, it was probably the equivalent of when Greg LeMond, way before Lance Armstrong, won the, the Tour de France, an American. That's like... Sacre bleu, you know, this is impossible. It's not, you know, American. This is uh, not, we can't even conceive of this. Well, Larry gained worldwide acclaim, and he's, he's one of the, he is, what's so great about Larry Stone, Master Stone, is that he's, he's not just a guy on the floor serving wine, recommending great wine. He's a guy that's intimately involved on the culinary side, so he's always concerned about how the dish can work with the wine. So sometimes a chef will say, well, here's my dish, my lobster dish, or my, pigeon dish or my pasta dish, whatever it may be, you figure out the wine to go with it. But see, wine is fixed. And so when someone orders a certain bottle, maybe they want to get a bottle of Mouton. And maybe it's for a birth years. Maybe it's 1959. Maybe it's uh, 1982. Maybe it's uh, an anniversary wine. Whatever it may be. That wine, once you open it and, and decant it and serve it, it's more or less fixed. Now, it may evolve a little bit over the evening, but it's more or less, more or less fixed. Whereas food is malleable. You can adjust food. Now, I might have a lobster dish that I have on the menu that would work perfectly with a Gewürztraminer, a lighter, fruitier, a little bit more acidic wine uh, than, a, than a mouton, for sure. Um, but the guest orders the lobster, and he wants to drink mouton, or she wants to drink mouton. No. Well, we can easily adapt that lobster dish to fit the wine. What did you actually put in it, Charlie? <laughs> Well, I think what we did was we uh, we made a, a quick red wine reduction. Uh, we added a little quick saute of, of wild mushrooms, a few little notes of uh, reduced uh, veal stock. Next thing you know, the lobster dish goes right into red wine territory. Oh. And that's the beauty of uh, things like that. That's amazing. So. No, it's a marvelous thing. Now, the book is, I can't, uh, I can't really do justice to it because at the end of each chapter, you have a specific set of notes that says, okay, the, these are the service points related to what we just talked about. Perhaps you can think of a couple of really good examples of that that uh, might be adaptable to someone serving wine at home rather than serving wine in a restaurant because we have, uh, we have listeners in both camps. Well, in the end, I always advocate that the wine is fixed. The food is is adjustable or malleable. And you you know once you open that bottle of Pinot Noir or Chardonnay or uh, Gruner Berliner or whatever it may be, that's fine. But the food you can add some meat juice, or you can add red wine reduction, or you can lighten it up, or you could add citrus. And you shouldn't be so fixed with the food. I mean, you don't have to be. I, I don't think you have to overly intellectualize food and wine pairing. But if you want to make a few adjustments, the next thing you know. The dish can work perfectly, superbly with the wine, and then you're on another level altogether. Yeah, we had an earlier guest on the program oh, was a couple of years ago, Evan Goldstein, who you quote liberally in your book. And Evan's a great personal friend, and he, like Larry, is one of the great geniuses of food and wine pairing. He's yeah, amazing. And he wrote a book with his mother, Joyce. Yes, Joyce. Uh, where, uh, and, and he went the same way you did. He said, this is the wine. Uh, Joyce, you come up, Mother, just c come up with a dish that goes with this wine, which is a very similar approach to, to what you're talking about. Well, Evan and I appear every year together at the Sante uh, uh, Magazine Symposium, where they bring together food and wine professionals, and he and I 
are on stage together, and we do a little exercise in that vein. So he, we've worked extensively together. Wow. Now, one of the most amazing things, I'm in the seasonal food and wine pairing chapter, which is where I think listeners are going to find some very, very interesting things. And I glanced through some of the pairings that you have, and the amazing thing is the, is the breadth of the world coverage of wine that you have. For example, I'm looking at a dish right now, which is a, uh, which is an organic dish, organic buttermilk with white pepper, toasted milk, ice cream, and nutmeg. And, mm-hmm. pa- and paired a lot, oh no, I beg your pardon, olive oil ice cream with Ven- Venezuelan chocolate and red wine. And you pair, you pair with that, uh, a wine which Anne and Peter sampled at the vineyard. Can you remember which one it is? Well, I'm, I'm testing which, you, Charlie. I'm, I'm sorry, which, which vineyard? Uh, yeah, which vineyard yes. is it? Do you remember? Yes. There are so, I've been to so many vineyards. <laughs> and I lose track. Uh, well, they, wine, you're drinking wine time. at these vineyards, and that's impossible. Uh, <laughs> that could have been at, uh, any one of the three or four places, and it could have been at... Uh, Why don't you just say it? Well, well, winery. Well, Go ahead, Kelly. Don't put me on. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, there's a story that goes along with it, but it's Bodegas Tora Albala, mm-hmm. Don PX Grand Reserve, Pedro Jimenez from Montilla, Morillas, 1971 year. We we were at that vineyard. We had lunch with the export sales manager, Antonio Sogasso. I was we, just about to say that, gosh darn it. Why didn't you just give me another second? The, the, the interesting thing, and, and Anne was horrified about this to begin with, was that uh, Antonio, he decided that we should have Pedro Jimenez wines from Toro Albala with every course. So we started off with Electrico, and we finished up with PX, and the, and the only the only person who finked out was Miss Anne. She said she she really thought she'd have red she should have red wine with the red meat. Well, I don't have I don't like sweet wines very much, and I didn't realize how they, they really have they much dry. Well, I was even more horrified by the fact that he said we all had to start out by having a beer. <laughs> I thought that was pretty horrifying. <laughs> and then the other the other wine I noticed is and we drank we drank this one together in in Margaret River, and a wonderful constellation apartment, Mosswood Cabernet Sauvignon from Western Australia. And I can't I can't remember the dish that went with that, but I was absolutely amazed that this is a wine that you would have even reached out to find. So well, it, sometimes we actually do really push the the envelope and and serve seafood items with sort of big and lusty red wines, especially those from Australia. But, again, with a few little touches, some some bacon wrapped around the fish, some sautéed red wine mushrooms together as a bed underneath the fish, um, a little bit of meat juices, um, maybe some pieces of crispy sweet, uh, sweet bread on the plate. Next thing you know, you've got a piece of uh, bass or, or, or uh, uh, barramundi or something from the Australian seas that work perfectly with, with a robust and fruity red wine. And it's really great when you have that experience. You know, we had this very funny experience uh, in London. Is um, What restaurant was it where we had, they, they gave us a champagne, I think, to start with. And then for the appetizer course, they brought some kind of a cocktail. Oh, that was that was uh, that was Zuma. I didn't think that I didn't think that was a particularly good pairing. <laughs> I did not either. <laughs> a, a, rather, a rather sweet cocktail with uh, with main course uh, Thai inspired food. It was didn't, terrible. Did, did, didn't seem to me to go to, to go all the very very well at all. But these are just some snapshots of what's available in this book called. Lessons in Wine Service from Charlie Trotter for the home wine consumer uh, as well as for the, for the uh, restaurant sommelier or the restaurant manager. Uh, but it's, it's a deceptively small book 
and one that I think everyone should have in their collection. Now, we're going to change direction now because the other thing I think that you might perhaps have a reputation for is making dishes that are very difficult for the home cook to reproduce, but you've proved that's wrong too. Yes, we're talking now about home cooking with Charlie Trotter. To make the cuisine appear so difficult that one would say, I'll never try this at home, I'll just go to the restaurant, it'll be much easier on me. Um, <laughs> That's the plan. Huh? No, I don't do that, I'm just teasing. <laughs> you know, we haven't uh, even, I just want, and there's nobody out there that doesn't know that uh, your flagship restaurant is in Chicago, uh, called Charlie Trotter's. Um, and, but anyhow, and it's also, you said going into his 22nd year, I mean, it's set standards for restaurants it, all that time. Was it an immediate hit? I don't know. You know, we we opened and we we were lucky to have a, a following locally from Chicago. I'm that's I'm from here, and uh, the year before we opened uh, Charlie Trotters back in mid '87, I I did dinners, prepared dinners in people's homes, and what I didn't realize then, I was just trying to stay in practice and sort of hone the dishes that would make up the opening menu. And I, 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 I was sort of an accidental caterer. Never dreamed I'd be in the catering business that year before we opened. But what it did do was it built up a small groundswell of, of, of interest and, and folks that felt privy to what was happening before we had even opened. And so the day we opened, suddenly there was a small group of 500 people that wanted to kind of get in because they had had an experience in their home or in a, at a friend's home. And so that served us well all those years ago. And, um, well, we've been touched ever since then. We've we've uh, been busy and um, still well, trying to uh, refine it and everything else. Well, you have a, a takeout place, which is your dishes, but they're already prepared and ready to go, right? That's right. It's called Trotters to Go, and it's our version of, uh, well, I know the common phrase is home meal replacement, but for right. folks that have time to cook, don't want to cook, don't know how to cook, don't want to be in a restaurant three, four, five days a week, either because you know, he's working, she's working, got to pick up the kids from after school, sports or whatever, get home. Who, who's got time? Well, you can stop by Trotters to go. You're in and out in five minutes. It's the same philosophy as at the restaurant. Everything is naturally made, uh, organic products. Um, you can get hot food, cold food, uh, salads, uh, sandwiches, wine, desserts. Uh, uh, you can make the entire meal. Uh, or you could make part of the meal, and we can give you things to finish the meal. So, but you, the key is you can be in and out in five minutes and have healthy, clean food, but not necessarily this just gourmet food. It's not like that. It's meant to be a real working urban food marketplace. That's but it, it really ties in with this book because um, these are some basic but really well um, fine ingredients and well prepared dishes that anybody can do at home, more or less. Exactly. Yeah, are, are in the home, you know, home cooking uh, book, and and those dishes are the kinds of things you'll find at. at at Trotters to Go. Over the years, I've written these re- these restaurant books that really feature what we do at Charlie Trotters, and, and some of these dishes require seven, eight, nine sub-recipes to even be done before you can execute the dish. Clearly, that's not meant for someone cooking dinner for, for the family after a hard day's work. It's meant to document what we do. So the uh, last couple of books we've done have, meant, have been more focused on uh, how do we make the philosophy approachable for the home cook, basically. Right. Do you want to take a single recipe, Charlie, and just uh, you know, perhaps perhaps it has origins in your restaurant, but then talk about how you modified it to put in this recipe book and for people to be able to make it at home? Uh, sure. Do you, you want to give me a recipe or you want me to pick one? No, pick one. Pick one. Pick one you're real familiar with. I tricked you on the wine. I took, tricked you on the wine service. Oh, you're, I like to be tricked. You're, 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 you're entitled to pick this one. 
<laughs> Don't worry about that. Well, I'm going to I'm going to start with a um, a dish. I'm I'm going to randomly just pick something, and it's uh, it's whole roasted tomatoes with wild mushroom strewn quinoa. Uh-huh. Okay, quinoa is a grain from the Andes. Um, it's not unlike couscous in its in its texture, it's, uh, although it's a little bit more toothsome. It's got a little bit more resistance. Um, but here's a dish where we pick a mushroom and uh, I mean, uh, sorry, a tomato, and we we cut, it's raw. We 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 blanch it, remove the skin, we cut it open the top, scoop out the inside. Um, we have a little mixture of this quinoa. Um, or one could use couscous, or one could use barley, or one could use rice. That's the beautiful thing about our cuisine is the, the idea of interchangeability of foodstuffs. And what we do is we, uh, we make a little mixture of the quinoa, in this case, um, and we add some wild mushrooms and, and stuff the mixture inside the tomato and then drizzle it with olive oil and roast it low temperature, 300 degrees, for perhaps, oh, 20, 25 minutes until it just becomes soft, but everything sort of melts together. But the tomato stays just firm enough to contain the grain and, and, and the grain, you know, the mushroom strewed grain. So that's, that's the kind of thing that there would be a version of that that could exist at the restaurant, although it might be much more highbrow. The, 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 the tomatoes might be quite petite and they might contain five different little tomatoes, organic heirloom tomatoes, each one with a, a different grain, each one with a different mushroom, maybe some jelly of mushroom on the plate, different things. What we've done is we've deconstructed it, and we've made it, here's a way to do this thing, get the same flavors, and just have it as a simple home dish. So, that's amazing. Than that. Very, very good, Charlie. Now, we talked before we came on the air about your good friend uh, Tetsuya from yes. Sydney, uh, who you've worked with a lot, and uh, I think you have a huge mutual admiration society going on. But who are some of the other chefs that that uh, really stand out in in your view? Your buddies. Well, I'm I'm not just in this line of work because I'm a I'm a, a restaurateur or a cook. Um, I'm I'm in this line of work because I'm I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the of the great chefs and the great restaurants, and we've been blessed over the years to have so many chefs come and cook. With us at Charlie Trotter's, we, we mainly for charity events, and we invite a European chef or a, uh, an Australian chef or anyone else, an American chef. Um, it's it's never for our own profit or gain. It's it's mainly for raising money for a worthy cause. Right. But for example, we, our 20th anniversary, which was about a year and a half ago. Oh right. We we decided to invite um, literally some of the great chefs on the planet, and so. And this event is like a lot of events, although it stands out just because of the, some of the headliner names. But um, in no particular order, we had, uh, now if somebody were to say name the top, top ten chefs in the world, we had seven of them at the restaurant cooking. Uh-huh. So we had Ferran Adria from El Bui in Rosa, Spain, Heston Blumenthal from the Fat Duck yeah. uh, in Bray, uh, England, Pierre Hermé, the great pastry chef, obviously Tatsuya, I mean, great friend and one of the geniuses, um, Thomas Keller from the French Laundry, uh, Danielle Blue. What fun you must have and, had! <laughs> oh well, it was uh, it was pretty pretty crazy, and uh, uh, we we had a lot of fun, and uh, we raised a lot of money for charity. And yeah, that's what talk about your charities now. I mean, you were known for being philanthropic, and but the one closest to your heart, could you explain the program with the uh, the culinary uh, education uh, foundation? 
Well, I think that, that most of us that are drawn into this world of food and wine are generous by nature because you're doing something that's very intimate for another person. You're cooking food, serving wine, providing service, these kinds of things, and that's a pretty extraordinary thing. So a lot of us that are asked to help out a, a, a cause, we're eager to do it. It could be a, to help a hospital or a children's museum or a, a, a local synagogue or so many worthy and amazing causes. But about 10 years ago, we started our own foundation, which benefits uh, young folks that otherwise wouldn't have the means to uh, to go on to a culinary program unless they received some sort of grant or stipend or, or scholarship from us. And so we've raised at this point about a million and a half dollars. Every dollar that we raise, we give away 50 cents. So we've given away about half of that amount of money. We're trying to build this fund into, uh, if you will, a self-perpetuating sort of annuity that long after we're not around, maybe you can still give money. And um, But you see young folks, they're 18, 20 years old, They've gone through high school, maybe tried college, maybe have worked a little bit, and they'd like to go to culinary school, and they just can't quite afford the tuition. They can come to us, and, again, we can provide the grant or the or the monies to help get them to where they need to go. So. How does this interface with your school, um, where you, the schools come and... and um well, now, those are two, thank you for the question, those are two real different things. Now, yeah. that's, the, that's the foundation, and that, that's just an excuse to bring in great chefs and raise money and then give the money away. But, but, but the other part of the program is the excellence program. Yes. And that's completely underwritten by me personally, by the restaurant, where three nights a week, for the last ten years, we've had Chicago public high school students come for what we refer to as the excellence program. And it's not necessarily about the culinary art or restaurant or, or the line of work of being in a restaurant. It's, it's about... If, the idea of in life you get what you give, and if you want a lot from life, you got to give a lot. You got to give a lot to your studies. You got to give a lot to any job you may have, and that nothing is ever beneath you. You could only be beneath that. You've got to embrace everything, even if you've got a job that you're not crazy about. Maybe you're working at a convenience store behind the counter on, on a weekend. You know what? That's a great job, but give it all you've got. And every school determines who they want to send. So some schools send the honor roll students. Other schools send problem students, or, or one school sent the state champion wrestling team. Oh. Everybody sends somebody differently, or the French class, or the band. Um, and three nights a week, every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, 20 students, two or three teacher chaperones, arrive at the restaurant, go on a little tour, sit down at one big table in our studio kitchen, and they have they have a 10-course meal, and they hear from a dozen staff members, pastry chef, fish cook, different people who talk about excellence and how they motivate themselves every single day to go to the next level. And then each one of our people fields four or five questions from these young students. And they're eating the same menu that's being served in that. They're eating sweetbreads. They're eating sea urchin. They're eating lamb's tongue. They're eating lime-caught halibut. They're eating organic tiny carrots, whatever's on the menu, they're having that menu. Some of these kids have never seen this before. They're like, they're, they're taken aback. They're shocked. Oh, many um, of them. They've never seen it before. Well, I sh- I'm, I'm underestimating. Uh, let's say most of these young men and women <laughs> exactly. have never, never seen this before. And I'm going to say maybe 20% of the groups that come are actually in foods classes or, or intend to somehow or another get into the field of hospitality or gastronomy or, or food service or whatever it may be. But for the most part, there are young people that come and they don't know invited by the school and they're there. And, but again, it's not about... I mean, there are elements of etiquette and, and little lessons that happen along the way, but that's beside the point. What we're trying to do is instill this idea of excellence. And you have to take control of your own life. You've got to... You're your own boss. You're your own toughest critic and, and your own toughest uh, demander of excellence. 
And it's a great sight at 7, 7.30 at night when a yellow school bus is pulling back up in front of the restaurant, vying for space with luxury automobiles and chefs <laughs> limousines. And people are getting out of these cars saying, you know, what's up with this school bus? Are we in the right place? Uh-huh. We're at the most expensive restaurant in America. What's this? And these students are tumbling out the, the, the door, giddy with excitement. I mean, it's really... It's pretty, oh, you're pretty amazing, Charlie, absolutely. I mean, we have 10 million things to talk to you about. I did want to get in the fact that you just got back from um, Abu Dhabi. Yes. And what was going on there, some gastronomy event? Well, I had a chance. I've, I've been to the Middle East before. I was uh, I was with my, uh, my colleague, Rochelle Smith, who runs all of our business activities. And a couple of years ago, we took a around-the-world eating trip. Uh, where we literally, we left Chicago and, and flew west and kept going around the world only to eat street food. Oh, so we went, goodness. we went to San Francisco, then to Sydney, uh, Singapore, um, Shanghai, Dubai, uh, New York City and back to Chicago eating street food every step of the way. So we went to Dubai about three years ago and we said, this is really interesting. Hopefully one day we'll come back. Well, just a couple of, uh, about a week ago we were back, uh, in that part of the world, specifically Abu Dhabi for a, a gourmet um, summit. It was called Gourmet Abu Dhabi. A guy named Peter Knipp out of uh, Singapore, who does the World Gourmet Summit out of Singapore every year, decided, decided to stage this event. And it was really quite spectacular. We were chefs from different countries, um, one from Italy, one from Spain, one from Asia. We were from the U.S. Everyone was sort of housed at a different hotel. We were in the Emirates Palace, which you got to see this place to believe it. Oh, it's I'm the most there. expensive hotel ever built. Uh, a three billion dollar hotel with only four hundred rooms, um, wow. over the top. I mean, just beautiful, gorgeous. And we were there for just a few days, uh, a dinner and a demonstration and some uh, lectures and some things like that. So it was really spectacular. And, well, uh, I want to sign up for that trip. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe next year That's we'll be back. Good. So. Oh yeah. Well, anyhow, I mean, I guess we're coming down to the. Is there anything we should be looking forward to in your upcoming projects? Well, we've got another book coming out, which is a. Uh, Sort of a compendium of our first works and our restaurant works. This is this is this is very much for professionals, but it it revisits dishes that we did uh, 20 years ago, and it, it looks at them and and we we reanalyze and 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 recreate those dishes, and you'll see the original image side by side with the current image, and the two things will look nothing alike, yet they'll be composed of identical ingredients. So they'll really be sort of a. a, a, a uh, an ex- uh, let's, uh, let's just say an exercise in studying how creativity might work on more of a compendium as opposed to um, just in an isolated eureka or aha moment. This is more how creativity exists along a line where things evolve and change and move and move and move, a la Miles Davis uh, or Bob Dylan, where, where these artists uh, take ideas and they revisit them and revisit them, and, and they seem to change just little by little, month by month, but over a period of time, they're unrecognizable based on how they approach certain things. So that book will be coming. It's probably about a year away. We're also opening a restaurant in New York City. Oh, uh, in about fifteen months. Is that going to actually this, happen? This is just. Be- this is just between us. You can't announce this to the public. Well, you, 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 I'm doing. <laughs> I know where I'm. I know where I'm. You know, but where is it now? I mean, I did read about it. Where, where uh, is it? We're about. We're, we're about. Uh, Oh, 18% under construction. It's happening right now. Obviously, there are tricky e- economic times, but that's not really that's not affecting us. But um, it's it's you know it's it's uh, we've all long wanted to be in New York City, and um, everybody wants to be in New York City. Yeah, well, it's a great place just to be. But this is uh, it's called One Madison, 
One and Madison, where, that's right. You're on the park, are you? It's, yeah, it's where, it, that's the name of the building, and it's where, it's where Madison Avenue dead ends into 23rd Street. You're gonna and, be, you're gonna be across the street from Danny Meyer. We are. My great personal friend Danny Meyer. Yeah, we love leaders. Him too. Yeah, known him for a long time. He and I started almost at the same time. I think he opened his first restaurant the year before we opened Trotters, but we've, we've, you know, we've been great buddies, uh, for 22 years, but, no, we're excited to be in that neighborhood. It's 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 amazing. This is not a hotel type of project. This is a residential building, uh, single restaurant that we're doing, and we're just looking forward to it. So and it's going to be called what again? One Madison. The, the, the name of the building is One Madison, and I haven't decided yet what what what, what we'll call the restaurant. So. Well, that's exciting news. That's, I mean, I hope the economy does turn around because it was we were just in Manhattan, and boy, I'll tell you, they, I mean, when when really big, fabulous. Restaurants are running early bird specials, three quarters of thirty-five dollars. I thought, oh dear, that was bad. It's tricky out there right now. I know. Do what you do even better than how you did it before. That's how. Well, Charlie, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful to have you on the program. What what we're going to do is we're going to have to scheme another time and another part of your uh, (laughs) activities because just just in case there are on the menu listeners who are who are not interested in listening to Charlie Trotter for thirty minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I've got I've got about two more hours to go. <laughs> but, uh, literature. Oh, Charlie, and, uh, you're so much fun, too. And the great artists. So we've got, we've only scratched the surface here. <laughs> uh, if, you, if, if you can, if you can, while we, while we say goodbye to the on the menu listening, listening audience, if you can just stay with us on the line, that would be terrific. It's just, been, it's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and uh, thank you. To, to learn more about this wonderful food personality. Uh, who does all kinds of good and writes wonderful books which are helpful to everyone in the restaurant business or anyone who's interested in food and wine. So, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. On the menu listeners, goodbye, and we'll be back with you in just a second, Charlie. Well, that was a, a, an interesting, stimulating, and fun interview with, with Charlie. And, uh, of course, it's very clear that we're going to have to have him back again, and I look forward to a second interview. Uh, meanwhile, and, and, and maybe, and maybe even a third. And maybe even a third. <laughs> but, but meanwhile, it's now time to take a break. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net. Welcome back to On the Menu. Remember, you can email us at any time, on the menu at onthemenuradio.com. Or you can join our blog at onthemenuradio.blogspot.com. Or you can do both. Preferably. <laughs> preferably. Preferably yeah. you could do both. Well, you can certainly do both yeah. or whichever, whichever you feel like. Now, and now surprise that we did f- mention in, in our interview with Charlie Trotter, um, the, the, Revival, not revival. I don't know what you call it—a renaissance, a beer renaissance. But it's the craft beer movement that's that's taking over the world. And we mentioned that we had wonderful craft beers from Dock Street. And now here's an interview we did with. Go ahead. With them. Um, Anne is generally known for not liking beer very much. Well, I must start out by saying, Dock Street beer. I like a lot. We're very pleased to have with us Rosemarie Certo, who's the owner and president of that company, and Benjamin Potts, who is the brewer. Welcome to On the Menu. Nice to be here. Yes. Now, what all did we have? We had we sampled. Do you remember the names? We, well, we had we had Man of Trouble Porter, which the great uh, names. Great we names. Had, <laughs> we had 
Bohemian Pilsner, which is as close to Pilsner Akal as I've ever drunk from a microbrewery, which means it's very good. And the other two I don't remember, Rosemary. You probably remember what we sent. Uh, we sent you the Hop Garden, which is a really wonderful hoppy beer, but Ben will speak to that in, in a little bit. And probably we sent you the Prince Mishkin Russian Imperial Stout, which you, is a... You did. A wonderful, wonderful high in alcohol really great flavors, um, really velvety mouthfeel. And Ben will speak to that also. When it was, Marie, before you pass this over to Benjamin, um, could you tell, how did you, when? I, I, wanted to say, I, wanted, I wanted to say something before we got into that because I, cause I'm, I'm, I want to keep listeners on track here and it, it occurs to me that they will have heard about Prince So-and-So's Imperial Stout and for those people who are beer connoisseurs across the world, which is, of course, where OTM listeners are, it's for all the world like Samuel Smith's Imperial Stout, just in case you're wondering what experience it'll be like. Now, back, back to your questions. We have. Yes, Rosemary, I was wondering, you know, when and how did you get into the micro? Brew business. Well, it's a perfect segue uh, to Samuel Smith, Russian Imperial Style, because the reason why the microbrewery movement started, or at least the reason why we started in 1985, was that if you wanted, if Americans wanted to drink a good beer, they the only choices were to buy an imported beer, and. Our feeling was that there was no reason that Americans couldn't make a really high-end quality beer and hence started this simple concept of, hey, we're going to make a great beer to an industry that has revolutionized the American taste buds and and that's what we have done. We were... Uh, Dog Tree was one of the leading pioneers in the American microbrew revolution uh, and we... As I said, started in 1985. There's a handful of breweries, most of them, uh, in the West Coast, and uh, we were one of the first on the East Coast. And how did it get called Dock Street? We called it Dock Street because at the center of culture in revolutionary times, colonial times, Dock Street in Philadelphia was the center of brewing culture. And when we were doing research about the history of uh, brewing in Philadelphia, that's where we came across. In fact, we have this wonderful little uh, poster that uh, that is a poster of Dock Street with all these beer barrels and horse okay. and buggies. It's a great, great history. And there's only three blocks of Dock Street left now. Oh no! Now, now you must have, you must have had a day job when you got into the to the brewing business, Rosemary. Share with us what that was. Well, I was a professional photographer. I've never had a real job per se where you know you work nine to five. I think my mind has always um, uh, been interested in in producing some something different, some quality product. I come from a family in Sicily who uh, made oh, olive oils and wines. And see, uh, another Sicilian. We, I am also. We we meet all these Sicilians. We're really a creative lot, I have to tell you. <laughs> uh, that's a wonder. That's what happens in the whole brewing industry. There are people who. In one way or another, have just want to uh, create and make really wonderful beverages, food. Most most people who are brewers are also really into food. I know that I am. Yes. Now let's now let's uh, let's talk about. We're going to use the ugly word that was all over the Super Bowl yesterday: drinkability. These these beers 
have drinkability, which unfortunately Budweiser doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> these are, I think, how can I classify them? These are beers worth drinking. Uh, they are, they have character. They have, uh, they have a difference about them. They're, they're really very special. Oh, I loved it. And I, mean, and, uh, I have a rave about beers. You know that. Well, how, well, how about Benjamin? No, well, I was going to ask him how he figured out how to do, how to do this. Um, I will put Ben, uh, here's Benjamin. He'll, Benjamin, tell us how you got into this whole thing. Hello? Yes, tell us how you got into microbrewing. Well, I actually got into microbrewing from homebrewing originally. I um, wondered. Lots of, yeah, lots of people do. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, I uh, I was an avid home brewer. I, you know, I began when I you know first turned twenty one. You know, I never really went went. I always went against the grain of most things. So you know, I had a friend and I. We'd always split cases of uh, of really good craft beers and whatnot, and that sort of introduced me into flavor. You know, <laughs> uh, very different from your the average uh, beer that most people drink. Well, you and, certainly hit it exactly the right moment for the rise of craft beers in this country, huh? Yeah, definitely. Or definitely. the whole world, actually. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, that's how I really got started in it. Just, uh, discovered flavorful beverages and, uh, then I had a friend who got into home brewing and I saw how relatively easy it was to make a batch of home brew and, and did that for, uh, several years. And then I was fortunate enough to have a friend who was, who was working with Doc Street who brought me in as a volunteer. Oh, I was going to say, how did you get to know, uh, Rosemary? Yeah, yeah, well, I, she, there was a mutual employee here who who I was friends with, and uh, so I eventually started uh, volunteering when they first op- opened back up here in West Philadelphia, uh, I guess about a year and a half ago, and um, and it all started from there. I just started volunteering and, and worked my way on up. Okay, so you so Rosemary, you actually moved from somewhere else. Yeah, the, the first Dock Street uh, was originally at 18th and Cherry, and so after you know after the label change. Right, in Center so, City. Yeah. Yeah, so after the, the label was sold and whatnot, uh, went through a number of changes, and uh, eventually we ended up back here in, in West Philly. How did you get your names, or how do you de- devise your names? Uh, it's, it's really a creative process between everybody. Uh, you know, we all sit down and uh, we start brainstorming on what the beer is, um, you know, why we made it, how it relates to, to what we're doing, uh, the area we're in. You know, we have uh, the satellite stout. Which is a, a, a stout brewed with coffee from the cafe next door. Oh, really? Yeah. So you know. Um, Tell us a few more of those. Uh, let's see. We have the satellite stout. We have the Goldstock Pale Ale, which was originally named. It's a it's a beer that was modeled after one of the first beers brewed in Philadelphia back with the original Philadelphia Brewing in the 1800s. Yeah, I like this one, the Man Full of Trouble Porter. Exactly, and then there's the Man Full of Trouble Porter, which is named for the uh, the, the only colonial tavern still standing in the city. So, but you this know, we, stuff we, is delicious. And Now, Rosemarie said that she's enamored also of food. Do you do wine and, or do you do beer and food t- pairings and tastings? Uh, well, we have we have yet to do our first one. We're going to have a couple coming up during Philly Beer Week, which is the, the you know a big event that the whole city puts on to celebrate our our beer culture here. And we're going to be having a noted beer author and writer and home brewer, Randy Moser, coming in, and we're going to do some some beer and cheese tastings. And yeah, so we're we're going to start getting into that. Definitely. Yeah, I think Rosemary, you were going to send me some information about that. I must confess, I can't remember whether I got it. Yes, yes, uh, I, I Rosemary. 
I yeah, I'm not sure if she sent that or not, but uh I never realized living there, I lived there for seven years that it was such a, a beer hub. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean we are uh, very lucky. We are very lucky. I mean Philadelphia is, brings in beers from markets in the West Coast and whatnot that, that really don't get anywhere else on the East Coast, you know, and it's just the quality of the bars that we have here. They've been uh, been supporting craft beer for, for some of the longest time, and uh, the Monk's Cafe, which is one of the, the, the first Belgian beer bars they brought in, the, they imported the first kegs of Chimay into the country, and yeah, it's definitely a big a big hub of, of uh, craft the craft beer movement. Can you can you pass the phone back to Rosemary, Ben? Uh, Certainly, <coughs> Rosemary. What I like to say about the whole craft uh, brewing segment is that craft brewing in America represents uh, truly the American spirit of adventure and individuality. And by that, that spirit, I think, has no limit. There's no limits, and we could experiment and push the envelopes all the time, which is what we like to do. And then just gives us a chance to make really distinctive beers, bring back, and quality beers. I think all craft breweries um, really are into making quality products. And I think that that just makes us, one experiment, the fact that we have no limit, the fact that we're all individual breweries, put our stamp in uh, in the whole brewing map. And I think with us, uh, you know, doing uh, the Hop Garden in our own way or the Man Full of Trouble or the Viscount St. Albans Ale of Health and Strength that we make beers with herbs and we've been doing it for a while, uh, just gives American beers, American craft beers, a distinctiveness that uh, the whole world is now, you know, looking to America and what we're producing. And we are just, as a whole, making just really great, great beers, very experimental. We don't skimp on ideas. We don't skimp on ingredients. And we are very happy to be part of this movement, you know, that was... No, no. That was started a long time ago, and we have that whole continuity and that history, which is wonderful. Now, Rosemary, your beers are produced in, in Philadelphia at the yes. brewery. How widely are they distributed? Just in Pennsylvania for now. It's all fresh, and we could hardly try to make enough to supply the market here. So, and now the bottles I got had uh, handwritten labels on them, but that's, it's really uh, the official ones have uh, regular labels? Yes, we are in the process of redoing our bottle line that we're going to come out with new bottled products. Okay. Um, but the, the ones that you got to taste were the, the draft beer that we serve here at the brew pub, and we also sell through our wholesaler, and they're distributed in Pennsylvania. So you and have a brew pub as well. You have a brew pub as yeah. well. Yes, it's a great uh, venue to meet and talk to all the beer beer geeks, beer aficionados. And, yeah. and um, you serve food? Yes, we have a wood-burning oven, and we make gourmet pizzas. Oh, wonderful. Some traditional pub fare, like beer-battered fish and chips, and uh, but mostly it's these signature uh, pizzas. We try to get as much local products as possible. Just as in making the beers, we try to buy as many American ingredients and promote the whole American uh, products, the whole American 
concept of great American beers. And, and are I, you going to aim for uh, Internet distribution? Not now. I think always, it always comes up and somewhere down the line in May. For now, we're a local brewery. We were... As you know, we were sold in 26 states in the U.S. We, Dog Street was a large company. And we now have become a small artisanal brewery where we basically are hand-making all these wonderful beers. And it's not like we have a standard. We've got to do this, this and that. We have no limits. So we're constantly trying and experimenting. Well, I think it's worth the trip to Philadelphia yeah. to, to see your brew pub and to... If anybody wants to, to taste these magnificent beers. Now, Rosemary, sign up, if you would, with a website that people can use to get more information. Yes, we have a website, www.docstreetbeer.com. And on there we'll have our, all our beers and the activities that are coming up. Ben was talking about the Philly Beer Week events. And, uh, you know, there are other restaurants and bars that you could get Dock Street in the Philadelphia area and the suburban areas. And there are other beer-centric bars, uh, the Standard Tap to Monks to Johnny Brenda's to various and sundry other bars. It's a it's a great great city, Philadelphia, for for appreciating all all that we're doing and that the other microbrewers are doing. Well, we yes. certainly appreciate it, and I think our listeners will too. Yeah, congratulations, Rosemary, and uh, and uh, Brewmaster Ben, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you as you have um, more new things you'd like to tell us about. Absolutely, and meanwhile, come to West Philadelphia Dock Street Brewery. We're on 50th and Baltimore. Thank you, so much, thank, you, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Rosemary. My, our pleasure. Thank you. And bye. And once again, we're poised for a pause. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And here we are. I'm back for what may be viewed as a denouement of the beer-wine issue. Would you like that? Well, <laughs> but, yeah, but definitely denouement. The interesting part about it is that the two guests uh, who uh, wrote the book... He said beer. beer and she, she said, said wine, wine. ...are both from Philadelphia, just like the lady from Dock Street who was just on talking about her beer. Right. But uh, it wasn't really... It's really an accidental Philadelphia connection. They just happened to go together and hear a couple of really smart, really entertaining people... Uh, talking about one of their, or two of their favorite subjects. On the menu is about to engage in a very interesting debate. It's all laid out in a book called He Said Beer, She Said Wine, and the he is Sam Caligione, and she is Marnie Old. Uh, Welcome on the menu, you two. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting us, Sam. Yeah, well, um, set up the premise of this book. Go ahead, Marnie. Ladies first. <laughs> well, thank you. This is actually kind of a good-natured and light-hearted debate about whether wine or beer is a better food partner. It's not really about which one is a superior beverage. Uh, we all know the answer to that is wine, of course. <laughs> but I will grant, Sam, that there is a little bit of debate about which one pairs best with certain types of food. So Sam and I decided that it would be fun to write a book that hashed it out with both the 
beer and wine arguments in the same book. And while and while wine has kind of enjoyed a lead in terms of the average com- consumer's perceptions on how well it works with food in the context of food, beer is really seeing a renaissance as a great go-to partner for food, particularly the breadth of beers that is now available as opposed to the light lager that has dominated the beer landscape in America for, for decades. Now, there is this scandalous thing that people are now starting to have bourbon dinners and scotch dinners. Don't you think that sounds a little bit extreme? Well, I I think I do, and I think, Marnie, this is one area we would agree, because I think beer and wine have a lot more in common than spirits and either of our beverages, wouldn't you say, Marnie? Oh, absolutely. Beer, wine, uh, as well as cider and sake, are what we think of as the fermented beverages, whereas distilled spirits take a base product like beer or wine and refine it through distillation. And in increasing the alcohol content, of course, they do increase the potential for flavor intensity. But with spirits, you do run the risk of essentially overwhelming the flavors of the food with too potent a drink. Besides, I can't imagine personally sitting through a six or seven or eight course dinner with a spirit served with each course. Uh, by the end of the night, I'm not sure I'd make it home. Yeah, I mean, I just had this experience with the, uh, you know, like the wine festival that that you're familiar with. They also had a, um, a whiskey festival, and I'm, I made it through the first two sips, and that's about it. <laughs> I had to sit down and. Now, eat. now, one of the one of the clever things you did in this book is you you took different food groups, if you like. You took a food group, took food groups that traditionally would go with beer, and food groups that would traditionally go with wine, and then you cross paired them. Did did I get that right? Correct. So, yeah. so, so you had pizza where typically beer might be drunk, but but then you were saying no, it goes perfectly well with wine. And then what was a reverse example, Marnie? What's a, what's a what's a wine-friendly food? Sam got the task of pairing beer with. Well, I'm not certain he's used to being asked to pair beer to things like foie gras, for example, or duck confit. <laughs> At home, but not necessarily in a book. I do that every night at home. <laughs> so, so, so let's uh, let's so let's do a couple of examples. I mean, the, the pages have you leaping off the pages. It really is a book that should have sound. So, why don't we take take one of your little chapters and do it with sound? Certainly. Okay. Pick one. Oh well, why don't we talk about cheese? That's always the fun the fun debate because we have not just fermented beverages, but also a fermented food product. Right, and and there's and a lot of controversy pages, uh, about this. I think so. it's Seventy-six through eighty-two. Okay, so he said beer. So Sam, far away. Well, first of all, I'll start by saying that cheeses in general are going to be fatty and will coat your palate. And while I think more people think of wine and beer cheeses as sort of the a wine and beer or wine and cheese pairings as sort of the norm. Beer actually works better because the carbonation kind of acts as an exfoliant and pulls that fatty coating off of your tongue, so you're actually tasting what you drink. When you when you drink wine with cheese, your palate basically is, is covered and doesn't know what it's having. So I think that's why people traditionally liked wine with cheese. Now take take us through your selections in that in that chapter though, because you're, we sh- we should quickly mention that Sam is the founder and owner of Dogfish Ales from from Delaware. I think uh, was a, and is a great leader of the craft beer movement and produces some of the rather more interesting beers in that category. So you did so you did pairings which included some of your own brews and then some of other people's. I did, but for this for this uh, exercise, I'll uh, spread some love among some other great uh, worldwide breweries. If you're going to do something, you know, a lighter flavored, in the cheese category, you're looking to pair lighter flavored beers with lighter intensity cheeses. I would say that's a good sort of general piece of information. So something lighter like a mozzarella would work really well with, say, uh, 
uh, Hefeweizen or a Belgian-style white beer. Uh, great American examples would be Penn Hefeweizen from Pennsylvania or the Allagash white beer from Maine. On the other end of that spectrum, super-intensive uh, cheeses, maybe a, a big, uh, pungent, stinky uh, blue cheese is going to want, or a Rockford is going to want to go with a really intensely flavorful beer like maybe a Bigfoot barley wine uh, from Sierra Nevada or, uh, you know, a uh, giant stout like Old Rasputin uh, from North Coast. There you go. Now, Marnie, your turn. Well, a similar rule applies in terms of going lighter with lighter and heavier with heavier flavors in cheese. But first off, I should take a moment to defend wine against this this uh, this attack from the beer phone <laughs> here, which is, I mean, everyone already knows that you have wine and cheese parties. You don't have beer and cheese parties. There is something about wine that cleanses the palate after each bite of fatty cheese. It just doesn't happen to be carbonation. Carbonation is what beer has to rely on for refreshment and scouring of the palate because it's lacking the primary uh, characteristic in wine that achieves similar ends, and that is the natural acidity present in wine that comes from the fresh fruit and grapes. That tartness that we find as a backbone in wine acts as a, as a, a balance, a counterbalance to both the fat and the salt that is present in cheese. And this has, has pretty much proven to be a universally popular combination. I don't know that I've, I've experienced people complaining that their red wines were lacking bubbles to work well with their cheeses. But uh, going back to that question about a lighter cheese like mozzarella or a fresh goat cheese, absolutely I would be on the lighter, brighter end of the flavor spectrum. In the same way that Sam is recommending wheat beers, I would be recommending sparkling wines like Prosecco or Cava or even a French Champagne. Sparkling wines work very nicely to highlight and and bring forward the flavors of extraordinarily subtle cheeses like fresh mozzarella, whereas if you had a little bit more bite, a little bit more flavor intensity, such as a goat cheese, I might shoot into a Sauvignon Blanc or an unoaked white in that vibrant, refreshing category. Medium-bodied, unoaked, high acid, those styles of white wines can shine a beautiful spotlight of flavor intensification onto almost any young or mild cheese in that category. But when we start moving into styles that have uh, quite a bit more flavor per square inch, so to speak, when we get into the aged cheddars or aged goudas or into the Parmigiano-Reggiano family, you simply do want to pair it with a wine that has a little bit more oomph flavor-wise as well. And in the wine world, that tends to be wines where the skins of the grapes were kept in the tank to boost the flavor intensity of the beverage. And of course, those would be red wines in general. I tend to think of light, bright red wines for the younger end of that spectrum. So for example, I might be looking at an Italian Chianti or a Pinot Noir from Oregon to go with a cheddar that isn't overly intense. But as soon as we start getting into those dry, aged cheeses that are so mature that they're showing their salt crystals, I might be looking to something with an extra layer of flavor, like an Italian Amarone, perhaps, or even move into the realm of fortified wines like Madeira or Sherry that have been boosted with the addition of brandy. Now, we're slightly off subject here, but you're such an expert on wine, and you've obviously thought about it a lot with cheese. There's been a debate going on that we've been watching for some time about red wine versus white wine with cheese, even with strong cheeses, and a suggestion that uh, perhaps a big red wine 
Well, I would uh, love and, uh, to weigh in on that because I do ahead. think that many people are more likely to be tasting one wine with many cheeses rather than the other way around. And Got when it. you're making yes. a compromise in any pairing situation, you want to, uh, I like to borrow it from the, the doctor's motto, which is first do no harm. Generally, the lighter, brighter, and more acidic dry wines are those that are most flexible with the widest range of okay. flavors, whether we're Got talking it. about cheese or meats or other hors d'oeuvres or any other type of flavor. So, when we're trying to choose one wine to flatter the widest range of cheeses, I will virtually every time choose a white wine rather than a red. Okay. Now let's stack the deck in a slightly different direction. Let's let's take a food group that typically one might pair with beer, and then and so we'll have Sam lead off talking about that, and then we'll we'll have Marnie say, well, no, 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 that's wrong. This is what you should do with wine. So it's it, is pizza a good choice, or do you have a different one? Sure, sure. Well, the, the wonderful opportunity we have here is, unlike wine, beer goes with everything. So any any food group that you choose, I can always expound upon. And I think you should probably go to spicy food, though, Sam, because so many of the cheese rules apply to pizza. Okay, that's that's great. We could do any of them, like I said. So why don't we? How, do about, spi- how about spicy food? Yeah, how about Thai yeah. Thai Indian. Yep, spicy food is one that, again, I think uh, beer has a a tremendous advantage at, frankly, uh, because spice, basically the stronger an alcohol, uh, the drink that you're having with a spicy food, the more it's going to amplify that spicy food's heat. So uh, in general, beer on average is about 5% alcohol, whereas wine's closer on average to 11 or 12% alcohol. So these these lighter ABV liquids are going to uh, be calmer on the palate on the palate as you're drinking or as you're eating uh, spicy foods uh, that said there are some beers that work better with spicy foods the the light lager style that kind of do- dominates the domestic beer landscape is actually not a great uh, style because it doesn't have a lot of malt background those light lagers tend to be very light and refreshing but this is one spi- this is one food category where you want a lot of malt background and for those of you unfamiliar with the beer terminology, beer mostly gets its uh, flavor profile and aromas from two main components. Uh, in this way, it has twice as many flavor components as wine, which relies on the grape, and those two <laughs> ingredients are hops. Hops gives beer bitterness, and barley, which is called malt, uh, and malt gives uh, beer its body and sweetness. So when you're doing spicy foods, I would lean more toward uh, malty or sweeter beverages as opposed to dry, bitter, hoppy beers. So two that I would throw out there for, say, uh, you know, a sort of coconut curry uh, shrimp dish, I would go with a nice golden Belgian ale, uh, maybe something like Duval. Um, or if you're going to do, say, Jambalaya, I would do a stronger IPA. IPAs are India Pale Ales, which have some hop complexity, but the maltier, bigger IPAs like Arrogant Bastard for, from Stone Brewery or 90-Minute IPA from my brewery, Dogfish Head, are going to have some malt to balance that bitterness, and both are going to work really, really well with spicy foods. Okay, Manu, away you go. Well, I'll tell you, there there is certainly a perception that wine doesn't pair well with spicy food, but I, I think that it tends to dissuade more people than it really should. There are very few circumstances where the spiciness, the actual heat intensity, mouth-burning effect in the food is strong enough to really throw wine for that much of a loop. Is it true that spicy heat amplifies, or pardon me, that alcohol in a beverage 
amplifies the intensity of the spicy heat. Well, absolutely, that's true. But at the same time, if we didn't enjoy that burn, at least to a certain degree, we wouldn't be adding hot sauce or chili peppers to our food in the first place. So there's a certain degree of that that is desirable. After all, we are we are attracted to spicy food precisely because it gets the, you know, it opens pores and gets the adrenaline running and, and generally adds a layer of excitement to the food that we're eating beyond smell and flavor per se. Now, within the realm of white of wines, I would say on average that it is the wines that are lower in alcohol content that tend to have the most flexibility with the spiciest foods. So within the white wine world, I tend to think more Riesling and less Chardonnay, for example. Within the red wine world, I think more Beaujolais and less Cabernet Sauvignon or Syrah. But that does still leave quite a bit of room to move and play around with partnering wines to the spicy foods. Now, for the two examples that Sam gave, the coconut curry with shrimp, almost all coconut curries are balanced with quite a bit of a tangy citrus character like lime or lemon being used in the dish. And that, to me, just right away, the combination of coconut, the seafood, and citrus takes me into a style that is one of the most under-recognized in the world. German Riesling is significantly low in alcohol than most other standard wine styles, with even some of the finest examples clocking in at under 10% alcohol, which is really closer to Sam's IPAs than to, you know, many other types of wine. German Riesling piques the appetite and has another characteristic to it that is a brilliant partner for spicy food, and that is sweetness. There is a little hint of natural grape sweetness that is retained in that style of wine, where most dry wines allow that sugar to ferment away and become extra alcohol content in the process. The reason that sugar is such a lovely combination with the spicy foods is that sugar tends to soften the impact of spicy heat the exact opposite of what alcohol content does. Alcohol will inflame the heat, sugar will tame the heat. So it's often wines that have a hint of sweetness that are the most favorable partners for some of the spiciest foods. Now, for the heavier example of food, the jambalaya end of the spicy spectrum, we have quite a different balance there with a lot more meaty richness to the dish and quite a bit of texture as well as the intensity of spice flavor that we find in Cajun cuisine. There, I would definitely be tempted to dabble in the red wine end of the spectrum. But again, looking to a lighter, more lively, more fruit-forward and younger style of red that could be anything from French Beaujolais, Spanish Garnacha, it could be Italian Lambrusco, as long as it's the real deal stuff from Italy and not the made-for-the-American-market version loaded with artificial flavors. Listeners, you can tell this is a wonderful deba- <laughs> wonderful debate. We could, you sound uh, like you're having a good time, could, you two. We could, mm-hmm. we could fill a program and another one, but uh, sad, sadly time won't permit. But the book is called He Said Beer. That's Sam Calagione, and she said wine, Marnie Old. It's an excellent book. It has real recommendations of the exact brands and labels that uh, that they're suggesting. And uh, the subtitle here is Impassioned Food Pairings to Debate and Enjoy, From Burgers to Brie and Beyond. And I think from listening to this, this duo, you can see that uh, there's, there's a little touch of humor put in there, <laughs> a certain wit about it, and lots of really basic passion, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think oh, there yes. is. Here, here's, here's a question that will stump, stump both of you. Might some stump Sam worse than Marnie. There are several foods which are notoriously wine unfriendly. One of them is asparagus, and one of them is um, artichokes. artichokes. So 
Sam, what do you, what do you pair with artichokes and asparagus? <laughs> well, yeah, again, we're, we don't really have that Achilles heel. Uh, the, basically, I would choose uh, for the asparagus something darker and roastier, uh, like, say, a porter, maybe Deschutes or Yingling porter. And if you're going to go with asparagus, something a little brighter uh, to go against the tartness of the asparagus, I would do something like a, a Pilsner, maybe Victory Prima Pils. <laughs> go, go ahead, Bonnie. Last word, last well, word for I'm the not, lady. I'm not exactly convinced that both artichokes and asparagus are such wine killers okay. as everyone seems to think. I will say that raw or barely cooked artichokes can be a challenge. They're loaded with a compound called cyanine, which has an unusual effect on the tongue. Once you put raw artichoke in your mouth, it, it affects your taste buds in a way that, that kind of tricks them and makes them think that everything you taste after it tastes sugary or sweet, but almost in is a saccharin that, kind of way. But Marnie, is that that uh, super fruit? That it's, there's a thing called super fruit or super berry that uh, they've been doing parties all around? Uh, uh, I haven't I haven't heard of it. So well, it's grown in Florida, and you, mm-hmm. you, you uh, eat it, you take a bite. They had it at the Fancy Food Show, and they demonstrated that it changes your mouth. Yeah, so it's that, almost like it reorients your senses yes, for they, a few minutes. It doesn't, it doesn't, it it lasts doesn't last for two hours, hours, obviously. With this but, fruit, but here's the thing. Two hours. Most people don't just eat artichokes raw. First of all, we cook them, and that breaks down some of that compound. Second of all, we tend to use them as an accent in recipes rather than as the primary ingredient. It's very rare that you would sit down and, and dig into a whole artichoke as your entree. Well, we do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> and not only that, well, in any case, it's rare in the United States for us to do it that way. Shave raw artichoke is the preferred way to use it. But what I was going to say is that there are certain wine styles that can handle those artichoke and asparagus um, challenges nonetheless. There are, are two things that I generally avoid with those two vegetables. One is wines with excess alcohol. Anything over 13.5% becomes very ponderous and, and too heavy to serve with those green vegetables. The second thing is that wines that have a strong oak layer, that character of barrel toast and spice, that almost caramelized quality that we get in Chardonnay or in most premium red wines, can be a little unpleasant when paired to those those uh, cyanine flavors. So what I normally do is I look to white wines in the medium to light-bodied category that are dry, unoaked, and high in acid. We want a nice, bright, tart zing to them to be able to stand up to those herbal flavors. My absolute favorite with both artichokes and asparagus is an Austrian style of wine called Gruner Weltliner that is becoming more and more widely available in the United States. But even if you can't lay your hands on some Gruner, I would say look for some Sauvignon Blancs that come from um, warm climates like California, like South Africa, like um, parts of New Zealand as well. Those will also be terrific choices for those vegetable flavors. I wanted to say, by the way, to correct myself, I misspoke. It's actually called Miracle Fruit. Miracle Fruit. Miracle ah, okay. Fruit. Miracle Fruit. Yeah, and uh, it lasted for two hours. Everything, we watched somebody eating all uh, olives, garlic, onions, and everything tasted sweet. Sam and Marnie, thank you so much for joining us on the Menu Radio. It's been a delight, and we hope that we'll see you in Pittsburgh at the Pittsburgh Wine Festival, or Sam, perhaps you'll start a Pittsburgh Beer Festival, and we can enjoy that together, too. In the meantime... He said beer, she said wine. Is a book that I think you'd find very interesting. It and would be lively. Very lively. Uh, it, it, would, it would be fun to have a beer versus wine sip-off party, I guess. It would be fun. 
So well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thanks yeah. for having us, guys. Our pleasure. Yeah. Happy weekend. Same to you. Bye-bye. And, and uh, we, uh, by the time this airs, we'll probably know who's in the Super Bowl. Maybe it will have even happened. But we hope <laughs> we hope it's uh, Philadelphia. We hope it's the Eagles. Oh, and be fun. The we hope it's the Eagles and the Steelers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, go beer, go wine. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll, we'll check your website for when you get that up there. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll send you a notice. Oh, that'd okay. be great. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks, you. everybody. Yep, Bye, Bye, be in touch. All right. Talk to you later. Bye, Sam. Bye. Bye. Charlie Trotter on wine, Duck Street on beer, Marnie Old and Sam about beer and wine. It's quite a heady program we've had for this week. <laughs> it was fun. And uh, we hope I like we'll talking to people. That's yeah, my favorite thing about today. Well, that's why, that's why you're so good at this program, dear. Oh, sweetheart. And uh, we'll be... Uh, <laughs> here. We, we hope that you'll join us again, same time, same place, next week. Bye-bye. Bye.